0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our fourth of BYU's fall semester 2021. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Corey Leonard, associate director at the David M. Kennedy Center for International Studies. Welcome, Corey. Hello. We're glad to have you. And just to mention a few more points about Corey... He's also executive producer for Beyond the Border, a documentary series that explores interdisciplinary international topics. He's the primary NGO representative to the UN for BYU's David M. Kennedy Center for International Studies. And he speaks often about diplomacy, leadership, international law, and global issues. While something that is kind of near and dear to my heart, because I did this when I was in college, he also directs BYU's award-winning Model United Nations and other simulation programs. And it's in large part because of that very wide range of expertise that we're hoping to pull Corey into a discussion of the 2020 film from Bosnia and Herzegovina that is showing this week at international cinema, Quo Vadis Aida. This film, written and directed by Jasmine Sivanik, was Bosnia and Herzegovina's nominee for Best International Feature Film at the most recent Academy Awards. The film follows the efforts of a translator named Aida, working for an inept United Nations force as it ultimately fails in July 1995 at the end of the Bosnian War to protect the largely Muslim population of Srebrenica from a massacre by Bosnian Serb forces that left more than 8,000 mostly men uh, men and boys dead. It's certainly a tragic story that is being told. And Corey, perhaps you can give us a bit more context to the film, as well as your initial impressions of how well the director and screenwriter did in telling this very low point in in international history.
1: Well, thanks Doug, and it's it's exciting to talk about this important and and very powerful film. I'm impressed that International Cinema has selected it, and I think it's an important film for, for students and faculty to consider because of the importance of the Yugoslav Wars And the the repercussions that it's had, not only in Europe, but around the world. The Yugoslav wars, um, they they were a series of ethnic conflicts that ultimately resulted in the collapse of a very fragile Yugoslav federation, which was created under the Soviet Union in 1946. These wars ran through the 90s until about 2002. The great diplomat, the late Richard Holbrook, who was U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, played a key role in the peace accords, called this the greatest failure of the West since the 1930s. So it was a major crisis and it happened in Europe's doorstep, which brought it home to a lot of Americans in a way that other conflicts wouldn't at the time.
0: Who were uh, the aggressors and perhaps something about their motivations? What uh, particularly is going on as the background for this film that um, takes place in July 1995?
1: I think it's important to, to recognize that the conflict was driven by the Bosnian Serbs who waged a very intense campaign of ethnic cleansing and targeting of the Muslim or the Bosniak and Croat populations. 1.4 million Bosnian refugees who fled to other Yugoslav republics. And then there was more ethnic cleansing and more violence that happened there. There's an estimated 650,000 refugees that made it to Europe outside of the boundaries of the former Yugoslavia. I think anyone who's been on Google Maps can see. You know, the dotted lines around Kosovo, and maybe they've wondered, well, why is that the case? But this is the current state of things that was the result of these years of war and ethnic cleansing. Those refugees, many of whom in the first group got temporary protection in EU states, but it, it, it had a huge impact on Europe's psyche to see this previously united country break apart and break apart in a brutal and as as you mentioned, a uh, a tragic process.
0: yeah, I, I mean, I remember when uh, growing up that Yugoslavia was always kind of seen as this model of ethnic diversity that kind of came together to form a united front, right? And so I think for some of us who perhaps weren't paying a whole lot of attention, the things that were going on, that when uh, Yugoslavia did fall apart, that it did so in such a violent way. Before we comment more on that, though, Corey, I was wondering if you might just talk a little bit about the geography. I mean, we talk about Europe, we talk about the Baltic states, but my guess is that there are at least some people who will watch this film, who don't have a good idea of where these states are. Some of us have become fans of this game called GeoGuessr. If you haven't discovered it yet, you've got to discover it. It uh, drops you into a very specific place uh, using Google Maps, and you kind of have to make your way around the streets and guess where you're at. And it's always a challenge when you get dropped in the Baltic states.
1: So tell (laughs) us uh, where, where we're at in Europe. Well, there, there's no source of starting points to to explore the geography and for uh, history students or those in in the College of Humanities who are looking at linguistic or language connections. You probably want to start thinking about the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and so the, the 1912 boundaries before the early Balkan Wars, at so the earliest part of the 20th century. You know, the Ottoman Empire. I wouldn't use the word encroach, but grew up and right up into where the boundary of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was, which is modern day Bosnia and Herzegovina near the city of Sarajevo. And so, again, as the Ottoman Empire began to, to break apart, as I mentioned, that went through a process through wars and conflicts that led to to what was the most recent current boundary. In the Kennedy Center, we have a map from 1983. It's still hanging on the wall. And so you can see the outline of of Yugoslavia. And then you can also see an overlay that will show the post-Balkan War states with Montenegro and Albania and Croatia and Bosnia on the Dalmatian coast across from Italy. On the interior, you'll see Serbia, which, which has a northern border with Bulgaria see Romania and I'm sorry an eastern border with Bulgaria and also with Romania and then uh, Macedonia which is on the southern end of the Balkans right above Greece and so again these are these are largely ethnic states or substates within much like we saw with the dissolution of Iraq through the two Iraq wars this was an area that was a cauldron of rivalries and tensions and so The Ottomans tried to subdue the area and and had a period uh, uh, when it was part of of their empire. The Soviet Union did the same thing. And again, those tensions continue today. This is still a concern and an area of of tension across Europe. It's not a resolved issue or something that's entirely in the past. The geography is still with us. And those boundaries continue to, to be an issue. So as we talk about, uh, you know, what
0: happened in in 1995, and it is very contemporary, right? Because the uh, general who's portrayed in this film, uh, Mladic, was tried in The Hague a few years back and convicted of war crimes. And I, I I don't know all of the terminology that was used, but he appealed, and that appeal happened recently. So maybe you can comment on that if you, if you have any knowledge of that recent, I mean, just a few months ago, case that came back through. But also to perhaps um, talk about how could something like the massacre that happened in Srebrenica Happened so close to the Holocaust in in Europe, it just seems difficult to accept that uh, that we've learned so little.
1: So I, I I'm not exactly sure the details about that recent trial, but you know there was a special tribunal set up at the Hague, which is in the Netherlands, which is the headquarters for the International Criminal Court and also the International Court of Justice. Now, these special tribunals, the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, was the tribunal that was established to try, as you mentioned, these former generals and um, alleged war criminals. There have been a number of convictions, and these convictions have held up. So I'm guessing his his did as well. But the question you ask about how this could happen in Europe's backyard is is a big question. And I think um, in 1999, then Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, put together a massive report where they they, they asked this question. And essentially what they found were systematic failures along the way from the international community side. So this was a, a trial case of essentially one of the reasons why the UN was created to prevent crimes that happened on state upon state violence because this was happening within a state a civil war an ethnic conflict it became much more complicated and difficult for the UN peacekeepers to act effectively and again that's that story of the UN peacekeepers is a tragic one and the film visualizes that and personalizes it in a way that I think is accurate and fair to the extent that the european powers were unwilling to use force to back up their diplomatic threats. And in a particular scene where Aida is translating for the, the citizens of Srebrenica's representatives with the UN Dutch peacekeepers, there's a promise that they'll be protected, that this is a safe zone, that nothing will happen to them. And this promise, unfortunately, was made in, at several points throughout these wars. And at each point, there was a failure to protect. And so, again, for, for the UN, this was a massive setback and a disappointment. And, it, and I think because it happened where it did in Europe, it was more visible, unfortunately, because other conflicts in the nineties, like Rwanda also had occurred and were tragic, but did not capture the Western imagination or, or, or visibility in the news that this conflict really did. Perhaps
0: uh, we can talk a little bit more about the movie and some of your impressions of how Jasmila Shavanik, and I apologize if, uh, for those of you who who speak the language, you know, we're probably not uh, pronouncing names as as accurately as we should, uh, but this is a, a very talented female screenwriter director who has done a number of other films that look at the life and, uh, and experiences of this particular region of Europe, of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And in this film, I think she does an amazing job of telling a story to an audience that probably doesn't know a lot of the details. I mean, even uh, those of us who have uh, tried to, you know, look up the details and understand it a little bit more, sometimes struggle with understanding the real complexity of the issues. But I, th- I think she does an amazing job of pulling you in and universalizing a story that is very specific to tell us about this translator, Aida, and her experiences. What were your impressions upon seeing the film, and how do you think the director did in communicating this uh, this tragedy?
1: I thought it was an outstanding portrayal of the story of the survivors. And I, I actually was thinking about a former student and, a, and a co- now a colleague of mine who was a refugee from from this time period. In fact, she settled in Vienna and I read I read an account that talked a little bit about how some people who were involved in this who escaped the conflict and tragedy have commented that how powerful the film is and how some of them have said they, they, they couldn't watch it in its entirety because it was so accurate um, emotionally and in terms of its narrative. So, again, you know, looking at it from the U.N. level is a, a 30,000 mile high perspective, but looking at it on the personal level, as she does as the director, it is surprising to me. This is only the second film I know of that really talks about the Bosnian genocide and tells the story so powerfully in a way that draws you in. There's there's no really seen violence in the film. It's an emotional violence. And if you know mostly know what's going to happen. Right. It's, it's like one of like a Holocaust film that we know the end is, is not going to be good, but how we get there is part of the draw and, and, and the horror because it does un- unfold very slowly. It unfolds very painfully. You know, I, I think about that scene where she meets up with a former student across the table, who's a, a military leader now, a Serb, and they exchange like polite greetings and they and they they talk about their common interests in school. I mean, that I think represents what an ethnic conflict was like. The people that you lived across the street from yesterday today are are bussing family members and your family out, killing people, raping and w- another example is, is that you know when we understand what ethnic cleansing really is, we once hosted at the Kennedy Center, a uh, Canadian paratrooper, Catholic priest, who's a very interesting uh, commentator on this. He had served in the Balkans. And I remember he talked about describing what ethnic cleansing looked like. He said, we hear this term. It sounds like a, an international relations concept. He said, I saw backhoes that were going through cemeteries disinterring the muslim graves but leaving the christian graves that's what ethnic cleansing looked like on one level obviously the wholesale massacre and killing of people the other aspect to this that's horrible is the wholesale use of rape as a weapon of war now this happens in all wars this is nothing new but it was documented very clearly and so we saw widespread rape used as a tool by soldiers. Again, this is part of World War II, world, every war, but this was in the 1990s. This is not that long ago. And I think seeing all those things in a very small geographic location over a, kind of a short period of time is is horrific. The director, I think, paints that not through a traditional war movie, but through the relationships between Bosnian Muslims and Serbs, between citizens, a city divided. I kept thinking about political polarization that we've seen in the U.S. and around the world. Well, this is polarization to the point of ethnic conflict. And and that's hard to watch.
0: There, there are a number of scenes in the film uh, towards the end, uh, towards the front, uh, in the middle to look for that show faces, right? Or the camera just kind of pans along and, and shows faces. And occasionally, uh, there, there's one that I, I think is marvelous. It uh, goes just shortly before the beginning of the Bosnian War and has uh, you know kind of a community dance and celebration. And uh, as the, the dancers are kind of enjoying themselves all of a sudden the camera just kind of starts to stop on each of these figures whose you know happy countenance has all of a sudden turned really introspective and somber And it's it's in in some ways a flashback that looks forward, you know, to foreshadowing to these are neighbors who in in the very near future are going to be at conflict, and some of them, of course, might be you know Serbians. Some of them are the Muslim population of the town, and and I think there are a number of ways like that that uh, Shabanik, the director, is able to create a very human story about this idea of, of ethnic cleansing that you talk about. I might just point out, Corey, real quickly that we are showing another film this uh, week uh, in September. We're, we're, we're talking about September 22nd to 25th at Inter- BYU's International Cinema with a theme that's called War and Reconciliation. We have another documentary called My Neighbor, My Killer, which is uh, another one of those just horrific uh, stories about about uh, a genocide in Rwanda, so if uh, you have the stomach for it, that's another great documentary that really should be seen. I'm wondering, uh, Corey, if you could tell us a little bit about the title, the Quo Vadis Aida, and where that comes from, and perhaps how it fits within the film uh, as we watch it and the characters, and I really want to as well talk about this amazing performance by the lead actress, but uh, what do you think about the title?
1: Yeah, so so it's an interesting use of of Latin that uh, the, the Quo Vadis translates as "where are you going," and I and I understand it relates to this apocryphal story of of the apostle Peter who fled Rome but ultimately mustered courage and went back to face uh, his fate. And again, I think it fits the film nicely. You know, where where are you going, Aida? Where are you going to go? She is a privileged character because she has a UN pass, so she can walk back and forth across the gate to find her family, to check on what's happening, to map out a, a way out. But at each point, she's confronted with the reality. People are asking her questions. People want to know, can you get my my son out? Can you get us some food? Where are we going? And so it's fascinating to see and, and imagine her inner dialogue, which we, I wondered constantly, how is she dealing with the pressure, the stress the you know, she, she's translating the Dutch peacekeepers words of assurance while she knows she can see what's happening and that the imminent threat to the people who are outside the gate. Um, she probably doesn't sense the, the threat to the people inside as well, which is an interesting pivot. So going back to the phrase, Quo vadis, where are you going? Aida? We don't know. But at every point of the movie, she's trying to find her way out, trying to get her family out, trying to save herself. And that, for me, was the the best part of the film because it brought a sense of dread and tension that I think not just Aida felt, but all of those soon to be refugees, all those who survived, right? Those people were in a less privileged position, but she became emblematic of all of them. And the actress who, who plays Aida is named
0: Jasna Durisic. And again, I probably am not saying her name particularly well, but her her performance is amazing. One of the things, well, perhaps two comments that, that observations I want to make, and maybe see if we can play off of these ideas, is first of all, I, I don't think that um, Aida comes across. In, within the film as a perfect character. You know, it's not, she's not always obviously identifiable as uh, the hero of the story. But also, I think that there's a real play on the idea of translation, right? This idea of being a translator. And so when you say Quo and kind of find a figure that's in between, right? She's not outside. She's not inside. She's not making history here. She's kind of interpreting it And the tension and the frustration and the inability to act that comes along with that, you know, those of us who have translated text know that your role is very special in the sense that you are a creator, you're creating something that didn't exist in a language, but you're not using your own work. And you have a real obligation to the original text, the the official text, and uh, you stand in between, you know, a reader and the text, and try and communicate across different languages, and I, I love that tension that exists within the text. And and also, I think the fact that that Aiva isn't the perfect character, and maybe I'll let you comment on it first, and then I'll, I'll let people know where I'm going if uh, if they don't fully see it. You know that uh, that I think that helps in creating the uh, the
1: vacillation of the title and the film and the struggle. Well, and that, that's an interesting insight. I, I hadn't hadn't thought of that, but I, I do think that, as you state, Aida as a not as an imperfect character is what makes her compelling. Because I can see myself as Aida making compromises, trying to understand. I thought one of the more interesting scenes about that involved language, and again, language plays a role throughout the film and in diplomacy and negotiation. Language is. The precision of language is what diplomats and the Serbian generals maybe are trying for, but the, the film, I think, captures that idea. So there's a scene where the Serb Serb general Mladic and the Dutch peacekeepers meet, and, and Aida is not there, right? She sends her husband and and two others as representatives. And the words mirror what I have seen in many New York Times articles or many books that talk about peace negotiations where the Serb general, you know, says really calming, soothing things. And you see that even when he walks into the crowds, they're giving people bread and Toblerone chocolate bars. And, and yet, the, and then the UN is, is, is trying to understand that. And, and I, it makes me wonder, what would have happened had Aida been there? How would she have translated that differently? Would the Dutch have better understood Mladic's intentions? And could that actually have, have been a small step? It would have ratcheted the pressure on the Dutch. It probably wouldn't have resulted in in airstrikes as promised, but it certainly would have alerted the Dutch peacekeepers to the to the dangerous plight earlier. And again, this unfolds like a, like a pandemic movie, or like a conflict from the first-person movie, but it's a, it's a negotiation, it's a series of political decisions and group decisions. And you're right, Aida doesn't get it right every time, but she gets it right enough that she's still in the game and is able to like to navigate that throughout the movie.
0: Yeah, and and I think I think people will really like Aida, and I think they'll really like the performance, and I think you'll come away, you know, feeling that this is a, a strong female character that has been created. But throughout the movie, I think as well that uh, sometimes her doting on her own uh, family and children can become obsessive, and you can see that she's not letting her family stand perhaps on their own two feet, and then it uh, translates as well, I think, into her sometimes becoming the same people that she's frustrated with in the sense that the un the, the very physical blue helmet troops that are on the ground or unable to to unable or unwilling you know to intervene to successfully navigate the safety of these inhabitants of Shebrinka. right but she at the same time is constantly shown running past hundreds of people that she is unable or unwilling to help because she's so focused on trying to save her family. And I think that can be frustrating, right? But put in that same situation, I'm not sure what any of us would have done, right? I mean, this film doesn't show you that the UN is completely wrong, that the that Aida is completely right. You know, it kind of shows you that between the bureaucracy, between the, the bullying nature of the Serb forces and, you know, decisions that you have to make on behalf of a larger population, you know, the UN forces who are clearly inept at what they're trying to do, but constantly they have to navigate a world in which, well, if I put your sons on the list and it's discovered that we've tried to put one over on these individuals that others may die because of those consequences. And so I think that we become Aida in that frustration and realize that we would probably make a lot of mistakes as well. I thought Corey, that there were frequent perhaps comparisons to uh, Steven Spielberg's Schindler's list, right? And uh, the, the idea of a list that being on the list might save your life runs throughout this film as it does in Schindler's list. But whereas in Spielberg's film, I think that uh, eventually the the uh, weak-kneed Oscar Schindler finally br- grows a spine and is able to save and kind of becomes this you know larger than life character. It almost felt to me like uh, Jasmila Cevanic realizes that you know it, not in every situation can somebody become Oscar Schindler, and sometimes things just break down. And whether you're on the list or not, you know tragedy is going to happen.
1: Well, I, I think there are two contemporary examples of this that we can all relate to. I mean, going through this pandemic, we have all to some extent been Aida. How do we protect those around us who are most vulnerable? How do we deal with the, the discussions, the politics, the, the the polarization? I mean, on a much smaller level, but in terms of the internal dialogue and the complexity. And then the other example I was thinking of during this film I've been on the phone. I've been on WhatsApp for the last few weeks talking to a couple of friends who've been working 24 seven, trying to help with the evacuation of Afghans from Afghanistan. Again, here is another example of being on the list, right? And, and for whatever reason, there was a list and it's about a hundred thousand people and those people largely got out, but there are others. How many more? I don't know, but just this morning we were talking about people who are on a plane in mazar sharif hoping to get out. And did they get on the list? And this is not a, a unique story. And that's what I think is universal about this film. There have been other genocides and other ethnic conflicts. I hope there are no more, but there probably will be. When I look at the map and I look at Lebanon, I look at what happened in Syria. I look at Turkey. I look at Greece and Cyprus these countries all have similar dynamics with complex tensions, historical rivalries, and that require management, that require careful diplomacy and statesmanship. In so many ways, I think our, our Middle East studies faculty would agree with this that, you know, the Ottoman post-Ottoman Empire problems are with us all across the Middle East today. So when people talk about challenges across that region, we see this. But you know, when we get down to the basic level of of understanding human nature, dealing with the uncertainty in a time of war, the fog of war, uh, to quote another great documentary, this is not an uncommon thing. And I, and I hope that's what viewers take from the film, that we're not watching a, a faraway war in a world we can't understand. These are people just like us who were neighbors and friends. Yes, at the highest level of policymaking, there were failures. Evo Dalder, he was an ambassador to NATO. He's in with the Chicago Council right now and a former ambassador said he thought the film, he said, quote, is a reminder that such a tragedy spurred the U.S. to find a workable consensus with allies, decisive use of force, and effective diplomacy to end a war. That's great from a foreign policy perspective, but the film shows the personal impact. And so when we think about refugees fleeing Afghanistan, refugees fleeing Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia and Albania and Montenegro, this is what I imagine it looks like. This is what I imagine people of the former Yugoslavia experience and and the tensions that they had to deal with.
0: You know, I was going to ask you another question, but that uh, felt like the perfect wrap up uh, to this conversation. And I was going to ask about, you know, what can we take away from this historical context and also from this film? And I think you've done a great job of suggesting that it's clear that we still have some lessons to learn, but that we can perhaps work towards improving the situation of the world. And I am so thrilled by this film that gave me the insight of this particular conflict that is very specific, but also very universal. Thank you very much, Corey, for giving us your perspectives. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, we'll ask people to continue watching great international cinema uh, to get these kinds of experiences. And in fact, I'll go ahead and uh, conclude by saying thank you to our listeners as well for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Higström Pratt, and Johnny Stallings who composed our podcast, Soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next week, keep seeing great international movies. Thank you.